Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode marks the second of a four-part Conversations with Curators series, where we talk with four curators about the processes, ideas and stories behind their curatorial work. For this second episode, I spoke with Nikki Cumston. Alongside being a curator, Nikki is an artist, writer and educator of Barkindji, Afghan and European descent. She's currently curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art at the Art Gallery of South Australia, as well as the artistic director of Tarnandi, an Adelaide festival that gives a platform for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists from across the country to embark on new works and share important stories. During this podcast, Nikki and I talk about how curating centres upon conversations and relationships. We talk about her pre-art life, how she came to the Art Gallery of South Australia, and her experience of being both a curator and a director of a major festival. And finally, Nikki talks about the changes she's noticed in the arts as an Indigenous curator during the last decade. So I think we should try and start at the beginning, especially as curator is one of the many hats that you wear, and you have quite an interesting pre-art life. Can you talk through how you came to art? I started my working career as a nurse and trained in a country hospital and then moved into the city, into Adelaide, and really wanted to do further study in nursing but just couldn't get in to do the three-year course. And so I decided to go travelling. So I went into Central Australia and worked as a nurse part-time. And one of the things that I did when I was in Alice Springs was I did a night course in black and white photography so how to take photographs and then how to develop your film and make prints. And so I travelled around Australia for a few years and then I came back to Adelaide and had two big bags full of photographs and wasn't really sure what to do with my life and my mum suggested I go to art school. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to have a portfolio and I was a little bit freaked out when they told me that and I came back home and I said, oh, I have to have a portfolio, I don't know how to draw. And mum said, no, you don't have to draw. You've got all these photographs. (laughs) (laughs) So together we um, sorted them into portraits and all the photographs I had of all the beautiful country that I'd travelled through and I got in. And so, you know, really that was my, my first step into the arts was through studying photography but then I I had to do all of the other subjects as well and did have to do drawing (laughs) (laughs) as well as art history and so I did a a four-year it was an advanced diploma at the time and then I got a job with the South Australian Police Department processing all of their red light and speed camera film and then I would also sit on the um, the printer that would print that I would sit there and print all of the imagery from either crime scene investigation, accident investigation, or the works that came in that had to be done for the forensic science laboratory. So I did that for six years. During that time, I went to university part time, and I ended up doing the undergrad degree in fine art and then went on to do my honours. And after that, there was a job coming up at Townsy, the Aboriginal Community College in Port Adelaide, and it was within the art department. They were starting to teach a diploma in applied and visual art, which was the first course that I had done. And I applied and I, I got in to work there. And so I taught photography as well as 
uh, history from an Aboriginal perspective for 10 years. And so what isn't quite clear to me when I read about you is how you went from the artistic practice and perhaps that more academic side of things to then the curatorial practice. So while I was at Townie at the Aboriginal Community College, the students were making incredible work. And at the end of the first year, there was such an incredible body of work for their assessments that together with the other lecturers, we thought we really need to have an exhibition of this work. And so that year we had an exhibition at the school. We cleaned up all of the studios and made that into the gallery. And during the course of the next year, we negotiated with Tandanya, the National Aboriginal Cultural Institute in the city here in Adelaide. And we locked in a spot for the students to exhibit at the end of the year. I think there were a series of eight years of exhibitions. And so unbeknownst to me, really, we were curating. And we were working with the students to enable them to understand what information we needed from them and how we had to collate all of that information for the gallery because we were the ones who knew who the artist was, what the medium was, what the title of the work was, and then the story that was behind it. And, of course, that all takes a lot of time to collate all of that information, to sit with people to help them to work out what it is that they're trying to say about their work. You know, it wasn't until... I started working here at the Art Gallery of South Australia that I realised what we were doing was curating. (laughs) (laughs) Your story reminds me how many curators who almost accidentally become curators do so because that role comes out of exhibiting the artistic community they're involved in and the artists that they're working with. And it seems like this relationship and community-driven impetus has in many ways weaved throughout your practice ever since. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... You know, it's one of those things where you you start off on one trail and you end up, your curiosity takes you in another direction. And for me, what happened was I was working at, at the college and there was an opportunity to work at the University of South Australia. So I applied for a position and that was to write a new course, Indigenous Art, Culture and Design for the undergraduate visual art and design students. So I went from teaching at that community level to being at a university where there were the first year I had 130 students and then the second year I had 260. Mm. So it was a really steep learning curve and I felt, you know, I had I had a, you know, I, I thought I had a reasonable amount of knowledge but it wasn't until I had to write a 13-week semester course that I realised that there was a lot more to learn. So I did that for a couple of years and then there was an opportunity at the Art Gallery of South Australia. It was a traineeship that was offered as a trainee in curating within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art collection. And so I thought that would give me a chance to research and learn at a deeper level about the artists that I was delivering information about at university. So that's where I then came across to the gallery and I felt because it was a traineeship, because I really wasn't fully aware of what a curator, exactly what a curator did at that point. Mm. And I think that really we all bring our own knowledge to the role and we each do our work in our own independent way, but 
there is a an overarching banner as to what is expected of a curator, that each curator is unique like every artist is unique, I believe. That leads nicely into something that I am asking every curator in this series, especially because, like you pointed out, everyone has these completely different approaches to curating. But I'm curious as to what does curating mean to you? For me, I, I need to have a, a good understanding of the artist's work. I need to build a relationship with the artist that I'm working with. And I like to give them the opportunity to excel themselves. And I think that through the project Tarmandy, we've been able to enable artists to be ambitious. And the way that we came to the title of the festival was by working with elders from the Ghana community. So Adelaide is on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. And I went with Mimi Crow, our executive producer. We went to, at the time it was called Ghana Warapanchenti, and it was the language revival unit at the Adelaide University. And we went to the elders and asked them if we could use a word in Ghana to name our festival and that we wanted to work with them to work out the best name. And it wasn't about, we've got this word and we want it translated because, of course, that just doesn't work. It's about thinking about the concept and the ideas of what it is that we were trying to achieve. And because it was early days, it was hard to imagine. But all I kept thinking was, this is this is an opportunity. It's It's a really unique moment in time where we're being supported to support artists to make to make work and to present it on a national platform. So we just kept thinking about, you know, what is it? And, I, and for me, the word Tamandi is translated as that first sight of a seed sprouting or the first sign of light, the first light of day. So a lot of cultures, you know, the new dawn is, is about new opportunity. It's a, it's a new beginning. And so that, for me, really epitomised everything that I felt I wanted to try and achieve and to give the artist the opportunity to be able to be ambitious, to think about their practice and how could we support them either financially or through linking them with other artists or people they might be able to be mentored by or providing a link in to a workshop or whatever it might be to help them to go to that next stage in their in their practice. So there's a lot of deep thinking and a lot of consideration goes into the presentation of the work as well as the relationship with the artists and then the relationship uh, with, the, with the partner organisations as well as, you know, within the gallery itself for the artists who exhibit here. Yeah, you've touched upon many things I do want to talk about, but I guess just to backtrack a little bit, you're currently the curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art at the Art Gallery of South Australia, where you've been working in a guise of curatorial roles since 2008. What kinds of responsibilities, whether aesthetic, cultural, or even logistical, come with your current role? Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's a big question, I know. <laughs> um, so the role as curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia, there is a big responsibility, not only as the curator, 
but also as a as a person, as a Bakunji woman, I'm here not only as the curator, but also as someone whose family are Aboriginal. And so just little things will happen. Someone will call up the gallery and they'll want, they've got a work of art by an Aboriginal artist and they'd like to authenticate it, for example. But then you're also the person that people will come to if there's something to do with anything (laughs) to do with Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander culture. You're the go-to person. So culturally, it can be a burden to to constantly be that person. And, you know, I'm really proud of my family and of my heritage and I will always step up and do and answer and be that person. But it can be draining. But, you know, on the whole, it's it's a really... I, I think that this is a really important aspect of my role and that is that I through the work that we've been doing here at the Art Gallery of South Australia, we've just released our first Reconciliation Action Plan. So the whole gallery is invested and I no longer feel like I am the only voice because we have employed other Aboriginal people. We've also got this group of 20 people who are responsible for the Reconciliation Action Plan Mm. and that they're well aware of the situation and so they're stepping in and stepping up. And we're running different classes here at the gallery. We have a class that we run for teachers, which is called How to Teach Aboriginal Art, (laughs) which in actual fact is how not to teach Aboriginal art. We're trying to give people a way in so that they can think about the way that they teach about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and not just doing things like teaching people how to do top painting. Mm which of course is ridiculous. That's not for anybody to do other than the artists who are from areas where they practice that particular technique. So we've really taken it on board that as an organisation, we can be responsible for helping to educate the broader public. And that's one of the big things behind Tarnandi. It's about really breaking down stereotypes and giving people an opportunity to learn directly from the artists themselves about their stories with, you know, hundreds of different language groups across this country. There are so many different ways of being and different creation stories and we, you know, we're not just one nation, we're many different people. Something that really interests me about your answer in terms of what you see as your responsibilities is that someone might think, oh, a curator is someone who puts on exhibitions or works with collections. But your answer is about the relationships you're cultivating, the political element to what you do, and the implied sense of activism, as well as having an educational role. And that's incredibly expansive, but it does seem to show that having conversations with a whole variety of people really seems to sit at the heart of what you do. Yes. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. It's, um, when I first started here at the gallery, I was given an opportunity to curate an exhibition and I looked at the collection and I didn't, you know, like I said, I felt really, you know, I was new to this. I didn't really fully understand what my role exactly was. And so looking at, at the works of art, the ways to look at them is either on the database, so sitting at your computer and pulling up images of works of art, 
which is not easy to do when you don't know how to use the database, <laughs> <laughs> let me say. <laughs> and the other way, of course, is to go and look at them in the store. So I would go and pull out racks and look at works and then look the work up on the database and see what information I could find out about it and just felt really drawn to the works by artists from the desert regions of Australia and I had a chance to go and do an internship with Judith Ryan at the National Gallery of Victoria. So I went over to Melbourne and spent two weeks and I had my list of works that I thought I might include in this exhibition that I was working on. I had something like, I don't know, 250 (laughs) works and she just took one look at it and said, well, you've got to cut that down. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but it it was, you know, something that I really treasured, that opportunity to work really closely with Judith and to look at their collection. But the thing that I think struck me was how little I knew about the artists and about where they were from and about the actual practice. So I applied for a travel grant and was able to go and I did about four or five journeys where I'd go to different areas. So I went to the APY lands, the Arnhemupitjara lands in South Australia and I asked the art centre managers if I could come and visit So I hired a car and a lovely artist friend came with me. I just felt, you know, a bit vulnerable being by myself driving a big four-wheel drive out in the desert. So we travelled and stayed on people's couches or (laughs) in the swag out on the veranda or because there's no accommodation. It's really difficult for people living and working in in regional art centres. But through their generosity, I started to get a picture of who the people were and these incredible stories and, you know, this wonderful country that people are responsible for and how the stories are embedded within that land. And, you know, every tree, every rock is part of the stories that are being shared in the paintings. So those early days really taught me about the importance of being able to sit down and listen. In previous podcast interviews with Glenn Isika-Pilkington and Luke Scholes, a talking point that came out was the dual experience of working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and art objects while also working in institutional and colonial contexts. Do you find as well that there is a push and pull between these two? Yes. For me, I think that the... You know, working within an institution, there are all sorts of parameters that you have to work within. But I do have a sense that through the opportunity of working with Tarmandy, that this particular project seems to have its own energy that we kind of, we push through a lot of those barriers because of the, you know, the relationships between myself and also with you know, with the director of the gallery, assistant director Lisa Slade. We work really well together and I feel that if there are any concerns or or things, I talk through them. But it's a different... I feel like Tarnandi's been a, a really different experience than previously, really. Right. And part of the festival is that the artists aren't constricted by a curatorial premise, but instead are given the space, the time, funding and support 
for ambitious and new projects, and it's an artist-led way of creating art. This kind of model, was that in reaction to a feeling that curatorial premises were not always in line with what the artists themselves actually wanted to produce? Well, I think that for me, with the approach, the reasoning for thinking about what we were going to call this festival and the time it took, it took about three months to come up with the right name. And the reasoning behind that was because I didn't want to restrict artists by having a themed approach. I wanted to be able to give people that, you know, to be able to be open-minded and for them to be able to share whatever it was that they were that they were working on and I didn't want it to have to fit in to a particular mould. And within each of the Tarmandy exhibitions here at the gallery, there always ends up being something that comes out of it. There'll be some kind of themed... <laughs> and, but that's kind of in retrospect and it's something that we can then talk about in our public programs or discuss with the artists. We have a Bumper Bambalia, which is a Ghana word for conference, and we hold that on the day after the opening of the exhibition here at the gallery. And in the Bumper Bambalia, we invite artists to speak about their work, and sometimes some of those common themes or common ideas will come through. But it's not something that I put over as an overarching thing to start with because I just believe that we are so unique and different that everybody has a different way of talking about things. You wrote in City Mag about the festival, it shows Aboriginal culture to be ingenious, multifaceted, adaptive, evolutionary, even revolutionary. And you continued... I believe that this expands our understanding of who we are as a nation, empowering us to grow as a nation. Are these larger purposes always on your mind when you're curating? Yes. You know, ultimately that's why I do what I do. It's because I feel that through art we can make a difference in this world, that we can provide an opportunity for people to be able to understand who we are, where we've come from, the lives that we've lived and the reasoning behind why some of the things are happening today is because of our past history, but it's also our present and it's about how we navigate and negotiate living in this world today. And I feel that through exhibiting and through talking about these stories, that it's giving people an insight. It's the creative side of the world that really helps to express these really important stories. And I think that through the support that organisations can provide, that it's about really giving people a chance to have a voice. Some of the artists who I've worked with, there are things that they are, works of art that they are creating about situations and events that have happened to them that they've previously not really been able to talk about because of the atrocities that happened. So in that regard, we have a big responsibility and I think that the more that this can happen across the nation and across the world, we'll be in a better place to have empathy and compassion and have a deeper understanding so that we can actually help people and not be blaming people. There are reasons behind behaviours and I just feel that through 
sharing and expressing through the visual arts is one of the ways that we can actually empower each other. Mm, Absolutely. And that reminds me of a show that you fairly recently co-curated, which was John Mwanjal's I Am The Old and The New. And there was a panel discussion with all of the curators and John, and he was discussing what he felt was so unique about the show. And he really focused on, and I quote, that people are looking at my art through the language that I speak. And I thought that was such a great and important thing. But of course, it does bring home how there is a Western language to the art world. And there are kinds of art that historically and even today don't fit into this narrow language. So what does it mean for you as a curator who's trying to communicate through the works and to help the artist tell the intention and the stories of their art? That's a really good example. John Mwanjo, I Am The Old and The New, was a project that we worked on for three and a half years. And it was a joint project between the Museum of Contemporary Art and the Art Gallery of South Australia. We worked really hard with Nanangreta Arts and Culture and John Mwanjo and his family to enable him to speak in his first language of Kunungu and for him to be the driving force behind the works of art, how how did he want to present a survey of his work? Having been an artist for 40 years, having an international reputation but not necessarily a high enough profile nationally is really the impetus behind why we decided we wanted to do this exhibition. And to really create an art history that included him and provide him with that platform to talk about his work. So what we did was we initially just asked if he wanted to work with us and when he accepted and when Ran and Greta Arts and Culture were able to support us, we went up and we visited him. Before we visited, we enlisted a researcher to help us to find his works of art. So Genevieve O'Callaghan looked, she searched and found over 700 art paintings and Lara Kitsch. And so we, we we got images of all of those works and we knew where they were situated so that we could show them to him and he could decide which works he wanted in the exhibition. So we worked with Dr. Murray Gard, who's a linguist, and he came with us. And we also had the digital team from the Museum of Contemporary Art. So we recorded while Balang, John Mwanjal, sat with us and went through each and every work and made comments about the works of art and so decided which ones he would like to include and which ones he didn't. The other thing that we needed to do, because we needed him to be thinking and speaking in his first language, which meant that we didn't always know what he was saying because it's logistically impossible for the interpreter to be constantly going back and forth. So we just let Balang talk and this was recorded. And then Dr. Murray Gard transcribed the recordings. And the other thing that we felt was really important was that we wanted the whole exhibition to be bilingual. And so all of the wall texts, including the introductory text as you enter the exhibition, is in Gunungu as the first language and then English as the second. And all of the wall labels. So we worked with Balang to think about how are we going to present all of these works? You know, what was his vision? 
And it wasn't until quite late on in the process, like, you know, it became evident that he was taking us to his gunna, to his sacred site. And each of these groups of paintings were about the gunna. And so that's how the exhibition ended up unfolding. As you walk through, you were entering each of the different gunna that his ancestral sites that he he was responsible for, that he had painted about. And so it was a really rich and deep experience. And he he spoke about each of the gunrads. So at the beginning of each new grouping of bark paintings, you had his words. So you were reading Alam, John Mwanjul, you were reading his thoughts about that particular gunrad. And then you went on to look at the actual bark paintings. So it, it was for us a new way of working. For me, I felt that it was, it was such a happy moment when he came to the opening. To me, that just sounds like such an incredible story and gets towards the collaborative process of curating and, and the ethical process as well. And it just makes me think how, thinking larger picture for a second, it does seem that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists are gaining of a greater recognition that there are spaces for vast projects like this. Have you noticed these changes as a curator? Does it feel different curating now as to what it was 10, 15 years ago? Well, I guess for me, I've really, I feel like I've been involved as a curator now for 10 or 11 years. And certainly since I started, like from when I first started here at the Art Gallery of South Australia, it's completely different to what I was doing then. And I think part of the reason for that is because initially there was a, quite a small budget and now, you know, with Tarnandu we have the support. So we're able to do things very, very differently. And I think that that's the key is being able to not only you know, have the ideas and the, the reasoning for doing something, but you actually, you need the financial support as well. And I think that across, you know, across the country, there have been more opportunities opening up, you know, in the last 11 years with different exhibitions, as well as like the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair, the um, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Artwork Award at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory. That's been going a lot longer, but now in association with that is also the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair and other gallerists across Darwin put on really you know, significant exhibitions. There's the Salon de Refusé now, which is for artists to be able to enter the artists who don't who aren't successful in getting into the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Award. And so, you know, there's the Triennial at the National Gallery of Australia. There's the National now. You know, I think there are more opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander curators to be involved. We've still got a long way to go. I think that there needs to be more dedicated positions. And, you know, I feel that the emerging, you know, support for for people coming into the area. I think we need to have more support for people coming up. So I feel like, yes, things are changing and there are some really terrific things happening, but there's also still work to be done. And so we still need to be, you know, keep vigilant on that as well. 
And that was Nikki Comston discussing her curatorial practice. We hope you've enjoyed the second episode of the Conversations with Curators series. Stay tuned for the next conversation with curator, artist and writer Andy Butler. In the meantime, you can also listen to the first episode with Anna Davis, curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney.